Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Mark. So are you ready to talk about U.S. politics? Absolutely not, Dana. As a D.C. native, all I want to talk about is the Nationals. They won the World Series this past week, and I vote let's just skip energy, climate, and politics and just talk about baseball. So this is the first World Series championship in D.C. in 86 years by the oldest team by age of of any squad ever, who started the season with 19 wins and 31 losses, the worst team start for a team that ever won the World Series, and who made the playoffs as a wild card and faced elimination five times throughout. Wow. Let's talk about that. That was about as much as I've ever wanted to know about the Nationals. Thanks a lot Come for that, Mark. On. <laughs> well, how about something a little closer to my heart? Let's talk about the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Okay. A couple of weeks back on this show, we talked about how the U.S. was technically still in. But now it looks like we are starting to push the paperwork around and the U.S. is officially pulling out. This is... Uh, tough because there is just so much going on in D.C. these days. Let's say perhaps it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, or maybe just the most distracted of times, because it is really hard to get a sense for what is actually going on in the areas that BNEF covers, because it seems pretty much everybody is distracted by the campaign, and these topics aren't exactly front of mind for some of the candidates in their speeches. Hopefully we can change that. Yeah, we're in luck. So today we've got Ethan Zindler with us, who leads BNEF in the Americas. But actually, very importantly, back in the day, um, we were both based in D.C. and we'd go to Nationals games together when they were a brand new team. Really, Mark? You had to bring it back to the Nationals? I absolutely did. (laughs) Anyway, uh, (laughs) let's talk about the fact that Ethan Zendler wrote a VIP comment earlier this year for BNEF titled, Time is Running Short for Trump's Anti-Climate Agenda, as well as an analyst reaction that was titled, Democrats Go to Town on Climate. You can find both of these on the Bloomberg Terminal at BNEF Go or on BNEF.com. Also, please remember that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. This is Dana Perkins. And this is Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. So let's hear from Ethan on U.S. politics and the current state of play for transport, energy, and climate. Ethan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here in the studio. Ethan is joining us from Washington, D.C., where I would say most people who live there know a thing or two about politics, but fortunately, it's actually part of your job. Um, And today we're going to delve into three things that are the BNF side of the political spectrum. So let's dive into transportation, energy, and carbon emissions. Which one should we start with? What do you think, Mark? Transport sounds great. 
So what's going on in moving around in the U.S.? Gosh, uh, what's not? Well, we <laughs> we like to drive big cars in the U.S. As you as you know, we like to drive very large vehicles, and um, as a result uh, of that, and the fact that our CO two emissions have been declining from the power sector. The transportation sector is now the single biggest contributor to CO2 emissions in the U.S. And while we have been making generally actually progress on improving mileage efficiency of the cars that people drive, that's actually started to level off a bit. Uh, And the main thing in terms of policy and politics is a giant fight between the Trump administration and the state of California about uh, vehicle standards. Who's winning? Uh, tough one to say at this <laughs> point. I mean, basically, the, the what's at stake here is the um, you know setting standards that would rise eventually from 36 to 46 miles per gallon requirement mm-hmm. um, into about halfway into the next decade. California and a bunch of other states essentially have set the targets themselves. The federal government under Obama was synced up with California. Uh, and then Trump came along and said, wait a second, you know, I'm the federal government. I don't like this policy. And they put the brakes on. Uh, and that has led to a huge fight between California and the federal government because for years, California has had what's called a waiver to essentially set its own policies. And now the Trump administration is challenging that. Uh, and it all appears likely to go to court. Uh, one further complication out of all of this is that four major automakers have basically said that they're perfectly happy to comply with California's standards. Right. Uh, and meanwhile, they and all the other automakers are saying, well, wait a second, we just give us one set of rules that we can abide by here. We do not like multiple sets of rules that are difficult to understand, and we don't want to make two sets of vehicles to serve the U.S. market overall. So there's a fair amount of sort of confusion. Um, but to some degree, um, you know, I think the smart thinking a lot of auto, among a lot of automakers is they better continue to try to improve efficiency because, A, they don't know who's going to be president next and whether this is all going to change again. And B, they don't know how this court case is going to shake out. And so at the end of the day, they may still end up being left with something that looks a lot like what California and the Obama administration had wanted to do you know, all along. In reality, do automakers even make two sets of vehicles? I mean, presumably, they would cater to the more stringent market, and then that would have an impact on the rest of the country, which may, in fact, be the argument from a policy standpoint. Is that correct? That's the conservative thing to do if you're operating in a market, and presumably, that's what most automakers are doing right now. I mean, I would say, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not the regulatory affairs person at, you know, GM or whatever, but the smartest thing to do would be to assume you're going to get the toughest set of standards and continue mm-hmm. to plan accordingly. And of course, we're seeing lots of announcements around electric vehicles and all kinds of efforts that it suggests the automakers are trying to do some of the right things. On the other hand, it's worth noting that GM and Ford in particular make, you know, huge amounts of their money off of selling pickup trucks and SUVs. Which the Ford are, F1 series, I believe, is the most popular car in the United States, is it not? Very popular car and very profitable for the manufacturer. And GM and Dodge have similar you know, models. Um, so yeah, they're, they're being pulled in multiple directions. So this dovetails really well with emissions because this is a big part of the emissions pie, but then you have the part of the emissions pie that comes from the energy industry. What is happening there from a federal, I guess, and maybe then to state level 
Well, a lot. I mean, let's start with the big picture, which is the U.S. and the power sector is rapidly decarbonizing. Uh, so we used to get about half our power from, from coal really as recently as like 10, 12 years ago. And now that's down this year, maybe as low as 27, 28 percent by the time the year is over. So it's a huge decline in reliance on coal. And basically all of that uh, has been made up by a combination of natural gas, wind and solar. Um, with it most be really in that order, more or less, in terms of the contributions that are being made. So our CO2 emissions have been going down pretty dramatically as a result of all those changes in the power sector. And that's, I think, generally, um, you know, certainly from a climate perspective, very good news. Um, you know, there's then plenty of other things going on beneath the surface around all of that. Um, as you add more renewables, it creates new complications for markets. Uh, and meanwhile, Trump, you know, from the from the Washington perspective, Trump pro ran promising to revitalize the coal industry. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. has not been an easy thing to accomplish, despite his best efforts. So what is causing the uh, volume of coal retirements? I know that we definitely have a house view, but from the U.S. standpoint. Well, just start with the fact that these coal plants are ancient. I mean, we have plants that are some plants that are like over 40, 50, 60 years old. The average age, I think, is well over 30 years old. So, you know, we have these are not efficiently operating, you know, projects in many ways. And so the economics aren't great. And then you combine that with the fact that we have super cheap gas in the U.S. Uh, I mean, really, in West Texas, it's almost free um, at this point. Uh, and then you have the fact that when renewables participate in the grid, they bid in at, bid in at essentially zero cost. Uh, and so those factors basically are effectively driving coal out of the market. There are certainly some regulations on coal. We have the Re Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in the northeastern states that puts, frankly, a relatively small price on CO2 emissions. And we have a carbon program out in the West Coast, similarly, relatively small price on carbon. But the main thing has just been the economics are not working for coal. And now on top of that, no one's going to finance coal. Uh, that's the last thing is that, you know, banks and everybody have generally pledged not to finance coal at all. There's been a pullback on restrictions. Could you outline what some of those have been? I know some have been coming from the EPA on various aspects of kind of generally environmental things. But which of those specifically address things like uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gases more widely? So – it's worth just before I even go all the way down this road, I'd just say it worth noting that I don't think this really even matters that much. But the reality of it is, is that the um, Trump administration came in and immediately sought to undo what the Obama administration had done, which was a regulation that was sort of informally known as the Clean Power Plan. And the Clean Power Plan essentially set uh, a goal of reducing CO2 emissions from the power sector. It, it, it requested or essentially uh, uh, demanded that states formulate plans to do this individually. If they didn't comply, the federal government was going to do it for them. Frankly, we at BNEF in the U.S. were never that impressed by the ambition of that regulation to begin with because we thought that the U.S. power sector was going to decarbonize anyway. So then Trump came in and made a huge deal. Oh, yeah, we're getting rid of this policy. We're putting the brakes on it. And they've done that. But the reality of it is, at least in our view, is it's not that big a deal because the policy itself was not what was going to be driving the market anyway. So they did put the brakes on that regulation. They are, in theory, rewriting it. Um, but you know, reality marches on. And basically, coal plants have continued to retire in the U.S. The economics continue to not make sense. Gas continues to be super cheap. Renewables are getting more and more mandated, and so generally speaking, the trend has not, you know, been, you know, the, you know, hasn't changed very much at all. So, does the real power in the U.S. lie with the states? 
it's a big part of the story. And in fact, you know, one of the things that people don't talk that much about in terms of Trump and energy is there's certainly a focus on his sort of efforts to to deregulate and his very outspoken, let's just say, unconventional views about climate change. <laughs> um, but the reality of it is that in 2018, there was such a backlash against Trump at the state level with Democrats. A, you know, first they won back, you know, the House of Representatives at the federal level. But right. back at the state level, they won, I think, well over 300 state legislative seats. They took control of an additional six state legislative chambers. And what that's meant is that a very productive 2019 in terms of policies supporting clean energy. I think we have about a half a dozen new states that now are aiming for 100% renewable energy and mandating it. Um, states like Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, others that are all aiming that. Maine has passed something very recently as well. So the backlash that's taken place at the state level has been pretty strong. Um, now, granted, not all states. You know, Oklahoma, you know, Kansas, <laughs> sure. you know, they're not, you know, and by the way, those are those states are very strong for, for huge states for renewables, but not yeah. because they're like necessary because they're mandating it right, in any right, kind right. of huge way. Um, but the reality is that the gap between what the federal government's trying to do and what some states are trying to do is getting wider and wider. But in the U.S., states do wield a lot of power over it. They can mandate certain amounts of renewables come online. They can sign on to um, carbon reduction goals, all kinds of things. Is it still needed to mandate these things to come online or is it just – kind of happened? Well, I think there's certainly some, particularly maybe some, not quite within the environmental community, but some who, yeah, I would say some in the environmental community who look at the power sector and are kind of starting to, they won't say this out loud, but they're sort of saying, okay, power sector, boop, check the box. Like, yeah. okay, decarbonizing coal is kind of on its way out. We want to make sure we get rid of that last, eventually, what will be 10% of coal that'll be pretty hard to take offline. Uh -huh. So there's definitely still a focus on that. And I think some in the environmental community are also starting to point the finger at gas and not wanting to build more gas uh, at that point. It's always um, been a bridge fuel, right? Well, that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. So, so, well, I mean, under the Obama administration, I think, in my opinion, at least gas became sort of viewed as, yeah, a big part of the solution. And sure. I think a lot of people now, are, at least again on the environmental side, are starting to, to rethink whether they want to be supportive of that. Huh. And the new sort of pivot that's not clearly been stated, but it's just like, okay, we've built a lot of gas. It's helped bring a lot of coal offline. Uh, and again, this is the environmental community's perspective, but let's not build any more gas um, because now we want to actually, you know, the bridge is enough bridging. Let's, let's, you know, renewables are cheap enough. We can do more of this. And by the way, renewables plus batteries are cheap enough that they can actually compete with gas. And so I think that's actually a fair argument for them to be making. Um, but back to the original question, sort of, sort of, you know, on the power sector, that then has raised some questions. If, if we say, and I'm not saying I entirely agree with this, but if we say problem solved, power sector, decarbonizing, let's move on to other stuff, that does bring more of the focus back onto transportation because transportation is now the largest contributor to CO2 emissions in the United States. And we do like to drive big cars. And can we do more? I think that's a fair question. I mean, what do you think can be done in transportation? Well, I mean, we're certainly seeing a lot of a rollout of these new electric vehicle models. And I think... Um, but are they making a dent? Not really. Especially I mean, in trucks, right? I mean... Not in a big way. Yeah, well, so on the trucking side, um, you know, Tesla does have its own, you know, 18-wheeler that they, they're going to say they're going to roll out. No, I mean, oh, I meant, I meant the F-150. Like, who, who's going to oh, uh, compete with that? Yeah, well, there's... Rivian is saying that they're going to make an okay. electric, you know, pickup truck. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm dubious that we'll see that mass adoption of that sort of anytime, you know, really soon. Um, you know, if you're asking me what my prescription is for decarbonizing the transportation sector, I, I would say 
The, you know, there are new efforts certainly to support electric vehicles. Uh, um, Senator Chuck Schumer, the um, um, minority leader in the Senate, just this morning has a piece in the New York Times about his effort to support EV rollout and um, tying it to manufacturing and to jobs and to batteries and all that kind of stuff, which I think is, I think can, can garner support from across multiple parties, both, the, you know, the automakers, the unions and, you know, and others, environmentalists as sure. well. Um, but at the basic question of like Americans liking to dr to to drive cars they like to drive, I would say this as more of a kind of qualitative answer, which is like I, having driven an electric vehicle for six years now, I would make the contention that we do all the analysis at BNF all the time about the point where the economic crossover point comes and you get the total cost of ownership, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, and it makes sense. EVs are better products. They're actually better uh, in terms of they don't break down as much much less. They're quieter. The acceleration is awesome. So they're super fun to drive. And so I think there's sort of an intangible element to this where the more people get conditioned to actually trying an EV, the more they'll like them. I think the range anxiety issue is one that people just completely over magnify. In do you their have head. it? What's that? Do you have it? I don't, but I have people in my family who do have range oh, yeah. anxiety. <laughs> okay. So I think you can get over that. I think the other thing is, and I guess my point that I was trying to make earlier, is that I think if people would look practically at how they actually use their cars, we have a lot of families with two cars in the United States, many, many, which I know is a foreign concept largely here in the UK and a lot of places in Europe. But I don't know. It may not even be a – maybe something under a majority, but a very large percentage of American drivers have two cars. If they would stop and just think, okay, how do I use these two cars? I think they would recognize that they could easily have one car that literally could have a range of less than 100 miles if they were, you know, if they would just think about it a little bit. But 150 to 200 miles, definitely. 250 plus, absolutely is fine. And so I guess the point is there's a car in many people's garage that's ready to be an EV already, mm. um, and they just don't. They don't think about it, but if they go for a test drive and they think a little bit about it, they'll be like, oh, wow, A, I'll save money if I get this car ultimately because I won't be paying for gasoline. B, I won't have to go to a gas station. I'll charge it at home for the most part. Um, you know, and, and, and C, it'll be fun to drive. So I think people will do that. I think that is what BNF's transport team has actually seen, that in these two-car households where you are seeing EV adoption, you're seeing it as a second vehicle because that range anxiety does continue to exist and that switching over two co two cars isn't necessarily happening. Um, and it's not – let's just be clear. It's not crazy, right? Like, you know, I got to <laughs> go see, you know, my folks up in Boston. It's a – eight-hour drive from D.C. to Boston or whatever it is, yeah, I need a car. I don't want to be, like, stuck on a turnpike somewhere waiting for some guy, you know, to finish charging his Tesla. I, so what's I'll, I'll in your garage? What's what's your what's your demographic on that one? You got but one of each? We, we sort of – we did. For six years, we had a Leaf, um, and we had a Honda CRV. Um, and the Honda CRV was the long haul vehicle, and the Leaf for the short haul. We have further complications because we have a kid who's going off to college now, and we'll soon be a one car family. So, our compromise is we have a plug in hybrid um, electric vehicle, which is a Volvo. So, basically, my wife commutes 100% electric, but then on the weekends, if we want to go much longer distance, that car can go much further than that. You let your hair down. It's, it's a sweet vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let's let's talk she, about. She, she calls it her happy place. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about how you're charging that vehicle and what's actually feeding into the grid. Now, okay. I have a specific question, which I know you're a little bit passionate about. Yeah. 
that has to do with wind. So you yeah. mentioned earlier on in this episode that natural gas, wind, solar, are, you know, maybe having a bit of momentum in the U.S. Yeah. And I'm thinking specifically wind. When you say wind in the U.S., you mean onshore wind. But there is offshore wind yeah. potential. Thus far, nothing installed, correct, across all of the United States? Uh, well, we yes, we have uh, I think five turbines. Oh, you have five turbines. <laughs> yes. Okay, that but is yeah, not a really wanna, new wind if farm. If you want to round that to nothing, I think that's fair. Okay, <laughs> so there have been projects that have gotten close and not worked out. My my in laws live out in Cape Cod, so I'm I'm somewhat mm -hmm. familiar with the Cape Wind projects that did not happen. Yep. But now there is this Vineyard Wind series of projects. Yep. And there is some regulatory um, elements that are actually quite pertinent right now at this point, kind of at the end of 2019, which will impact the success or maybe lack thereof of this project. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, that's – well, first, just thanks for bringing up Cape Wind because way back when I used to be a reporter writing about that project I don't know, 17 years ago now um, out on Cape Cod. And, and at the time, that project was – they eventually bid to build the project for about $200 a megawatt hour. Vineyard Wind, which is sort of the, it's not even fair to call it successor, but the, the newer, you know, much newer project, they're looking to build that project about 20 miles south of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. So out of, basically out of eyesight for most people. Um, and they are looking to, their PPA that they offered was, I think, $65. It's actually, wow. I mean, about a third of the price, I mean, really cheap by comparison. Um, and, um, as, you know, as luck would have it, on Tuesday, I was with our colleague Rachel Schiffman um, at the American Wind Energy Association's Offshore Wind Conference, which is held in Boston, which is a actually really big to do. There were about 1,100 people there. And, talk you know, about the five turbines? No. What they want to talk about <laughs> was, you know, the potential for, you know, they're talking about 26 gigawatts. We're saying probably like 15 to 17 gigawatts. But like real, by when? real build by 2030, okay, like wow. real build potentially in the U.S. And that's our view. Um, but it's all actually keying right now on um, Vineyard Wind, which is one project which is um, co-owned um, by Copenhagen Investment Partners and uh, Infrastructure Partners and one other. And um, that project looked like it was in great shape. Uh, and it, they bid cheap and they won contracts. And they got their environmental impact statement work done. And they thought they were pretty much done. And then all of a sudden, um, the agency that regulates ocean energy activity said, well, wait, 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 hold on. We want to do an extra review on this. And that came last summer. And now we're in a kind of a weird place because basically this, this entire industry is just like ready to go, primed to hire people, build ports, like do stuff. And, and, and everybody was there. You know, we got the guys who make, you know, the bases and the monitoring devices and everything like that. And, um, and now everyone's waiting. And that is a decision, you know, that is now effectively in the hands of the Trump administration. Now, the Bureau of um, Ocean Energy Management, which which oversees this, uh, is run by someone who's actually a career person. He's not a, you know, he's not someone you would call a Trump guy. Um, and, you know, I think he gave some pretty rational reasons for why he wants to hold the project up. But I think if there's not some action by next March, which is kind of the end of the period, which they sort of regulatory period for reviewing this, I think everybody in the industry is going to get pretty antsy and start to become very suspicious about what the delay has been here. I mean, but March sounds like tomorrow. It is pretty – it's pretty soon. And, and um, you know, just to complicate things without getting into too much detail, we have tax credits that are critically important to the economics of projects. And already this delay is going to mean that that project gets less tax credit support 
than they were expecting, and it makes the economics much more challenging than they were. So um, anyways, a fascinating couple of days to hear because, like I said, the industry is really primed and ready to go. And by the industry, I'm mostly talking about like companies from over here, um, huh. you know, like Orsted, um, I mean, so that is Equinor, others, Shell. Else, then, no? Well, there is. It is a global market, right? And we we are certainly expecting a lot of build elsewhere in Asia and other places. Yeah, but it's uh, on the other hand, like you know, uh, having grown up in Boston and being <laughs> from New England, like there's a lot of people who'd like to work in this industry. New Bedford, Southern New England, has been hurting economically big uh -huh. time for a long time, and so there's a real potential here. And I think it'd be enormously disappointing if this doesn't come through. Is the industry picking winners in terms of technology? I mean, they're pushing for coal, but kind of. Rolling it back on offshore wind, does that sound right or no? Are we talking about the, you mean, is the administration trying yeah, to pick yeah, winners? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. So, you know, they've wanted to, um, and there have been various discussions and regulatory efforts to try to be supportive of coal by making the argument that, you know, that represents some fundamentally critical part of energy security in the United States. Um, but without going into all the sort of technical details and things like that, it's it's basically amounted to pretty much nothing so far. Uh -huh. um, there is a there is some studying going on at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission about about these questions, but it's all very tied into a, a lot of different things, like the rights of states to do how what they want to do, um, the concept of free markets and how those are supposed to operate. Um, there are a lot of complications associated with trying to prop up one technology, and I think that. Frankly, people within the administration, you know, those who are smart and those who know the energy industry know that trying to keep a 55-year-old coal plant online, you know, is hard to do yeah. uh, and, uh, and may not be realistic. I remember the one that you and I toured in Alexandria yep. uh, is now luxury apartments, isn't it? No, it's not. It's but not I, wish it, it I wish it was something because okay. it's an amazing facility. <laughs> I mean, joking aside, like you know, we, we took that tour and when it was that maybe – over 10 years ago, so yeah, right? 2009, yeah. 10, something like that. And you walk into these plants and you feel like you've, I mean, even then, which was whenever that was, felt like we were walking to a museum. Oh, yeah. And it was, the place was operating, yeah. right? I mean, these giant General Electric turbines written out in the old-fashioned kind yeah, of yeah. script across them and everything. And yeah, there was a digital control room with guys looking at a bunch of computers, but realistically, the place felt like you were, I mean had stepped way back in time. And actually, oh, yeah. I would love it if this is the, um, it used to be the Genon plant, and it's, it's located right across the river from the Capitol. Um, it would be great if they did do something with it. I actually think they should turn it into a museum. Because, I mean, and I mean this honestly, like coal contributed an enormous amount to the U.S. Uh, growth and society, and we owe an in incredible you know, debt of gratitude to the folks who dug coal out of the ground, who ran the plants, who did all of these things, and we should pay homage to those people and everything that it stands for. It's, it's no joke. It's certainly time to move on, but um, but you know I think it's it's something to, to be practical about. And I think as a, sort of as a, as we kind of blithely walk by, okay, coal has you know decreased from half a power to twenty five percent power, whatever it's going to be this year. It's worth remembering that you know West Virginia is really hurting, and then top and on top of um, you know the demise of coal, they're hurting because of opioids, and it's so it's you know these are these are real people who 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 are affected by this. So I. So there are definitely talk, uh, there's plenty of talk in, in Washington about workforce efforts to try to retrain people and stuff. It's hard to see how that works, um, but it's worth remembering that there are actually human beings involved in all this. Now, the natural gas industry is booming in the U.S., and for those who are not part of the energy industry, well, first of all, congratulations for making it this far into the <laughs> podcast. Um, but if you're still here, 
you know, you will know that natural gas has not always been a big part of the U.S. in terms of, first of all, energy, secondly, exports. What does the regulatory environment look like for natural gas that is making it to have such a heyday, or is it completely agnostic of that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you would hear the Trump administration talk a little bit, they would say, oh, well, the, the, the Obama administration had somehow like constrained the production of gas, which is ridiculous because the amount of gas that's being produced under Obama and now under Trump has been just rising spectacularly. The U.S. has been the number one producer of natural gas for about 10 years now. And we're now the number one producer of oil in the world as well. So to say, yes. So to say that the U.S. to say that the U.S. is you know that somehow regulation has been strangling the industry, and 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 on the flip side, to say that deregulation will unleash a great deal more investment is hard for me to see because there's so much activity that's already taken place already and so much growth that's gone on. So you know, um, you know, Secretary of Energy Perry, who's who's you know leaving now, but he he coined the term molecules of freedom, sure and um, that's that's what he claims that we are exporting to the rest of the world, and I think that term is certainly it's a little let's just say a little hyperbolic, but on the other hand, I mean, I do think. If we can be the one who exports um, to, to places to offset, you know, supplies from Russia, that is a good thing, right? Let's be, I mean, at least in my opinion, I mean, I think we want to be a counterbalance to some of the other actors in the world who are, who are providers of gas. So um, the U.S. has the potential to use its, its position in gas geopolitically. It also has the potential to build more of an interest industry in terms of LNG and exports. And the administration has generally been very supportive of that. I think both administrations have been, the Obama administration as well. So I think this has been sort of consistent between Democrats and Republicans. If you're looking ahead, what do you see as having the biggest impact in the U.S. energy sector in the next five years? Um, in terms of what will happen over the next five years, I mean, it's hard for me to see the general trends that we've seen changing. I think the, I think the main new thing is batteries plus okay. renewables um, natural gas sort of I would argue you know truly on the on the costs had been cheaper than renewables in a lot of places but if you factor in and also more effective at meeting demand more on around the clock basis very importantly but if you factor in the idea of including a battery um, and how cheap some of the bids that we've seen around PV plus storage particularly in the Southwest why? kind of counts a little less, but elsewhere. Um, I think that's something that's really worth keeping an eye on. And we've seen pronouncements from folks like um, the CEO of Nextera saying that he's more committed on, you know, on renewables plus storage. And so I think, you know, that's an area where we'll start. To, and we've seen bids in interesting places like Indiana and elsewhere, which suggests that this is a technology that's going to really kind of come along. So I, I think that's one. And, and by the way, on top of that, tying it back to policy, there is a move um, already, if you have a battery and you hook it up to your re renewable energy system, that battery is essentially, as long as it's not bigger than that system, um, can qualify for the investment tax credit, meaning essentially you get a 30% discount on the total cost of the battery. Um, that's sort of been kind of informally blessed by the Internal Revenue Service. There is now an effort in Congress to make sure that that can sort of become more codified longer term and even an effort to make sure that if you just build the battery and don't have attached to a renewable energy system, it can qualify for the tax credit on its own as well. So there's a lot going on. We haven't even talked about tax credits, which are boring, I know, but are critically important to the industry. And there's an effort you know, to try and extend those that's underway in Congress now. They always seem to be under threat of 
being cut off? Is that where are they sit now? Well, they got a, they got an extension in 2015, and that was the last time like there was a real battle about extension. So uh-huh. so it's not been quite yesterday that we've had that, um, but every time that they have cut off, at least on the wind industry, we've seen just this collapse of yeah. Of they always call it the cliff, right? Yeah, the every cliff. time it happens. Every time it happens, <laughs> and so we are sort of looking at another cliff kind of coming, but but not quite the same cliff. I don't. Maybe it's a dune. I don't know what you want to call it, <laughs> <laughs> which is like. You know, we'll see as the tax credits roll off, probably, a, you know, a decline in activity, particularly in the wind sector. Um, but the reason why it's more of a dune than a cliff is because the way Congress wrote it is that the tax credit essentially phases down. It doesn't uh-huh. just like, boom, pop off. So that that helps and makes it a little more gradual. That said, the wind industry would really like the tax credit extended. The solar industry would like it extended. I think they were not hopeful they had any chance of that happening. And then the Democrats won the House of Representatives in 2018. And now everyone thinks, okay, well, maybe we got a shot. So now we have this little impeachment thing going on. And so (laughs) whether or not anything happens, frankly, on anything else in Washington is a real open question. We haven't even, you know, we're we're now operating in a new fiscal year in in the United States that started October 1st. We don't have a budget for this year. We're still operating over last year's budget. And, you know, we're looking at a potential government shutdown at the end of November. So, you know, kind of like literally the keep the lights on stuff needs to get done first before. And then, of course, the impeachment thing. And then I think there's the question of whether or not tax credits can get addressed sometime before the end of the year. You know, the usual craziness in Washington. Ethan, it has been a long time since I have lived in the U.S. or Washington, D.C., for that matter. So thank you so much for joining us today and letting us know what is happening in the U.S. We look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Thanks. Go Nationals. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. We haven't even talked about baseball yet. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.